Welcome to episode five of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, who won two key special election primaries this week in Utah and Rhode Island? What and where are the most competitive races for governor this year and next year? And which congressional candidate has tickets to space? Buckle up. Nathan Gonzalez, and I spent Labor Day weekend just outside of D.C. in swimming pools in Maryland's 4th District and Virginia's 11th District. Hey, I'm Erin Covey, and I spent Labor Day weekend where I spend most of my weekends, which is in Virginia's 8th District, um, right on the border across the Potomac, which is represented by Don Byer and is also where my boyfriend lives. So I cross the Potomac pretty much every weekend. (laughs) But most of the weekend was actually in D.C., which obviously doesn't have congressional representation. (laughs) Still, no congressional representation. <laughs> All right, Jacob. Uh, and I'm Jacob Rubashkin, and I spent Labor Day weekend in New Jersey's 11th district, which is uh, the New York suburbs, uh, as well as Maryland's 7th district, which is the city of Baltimore. Before we get to our three big stories, what are the big news developments that we should make sure and not miss? Erin. Yeah, so we had a redistricting development in Alabama. Um, As a lot of y'all probably know, federal judges had previously struck down Alabama's congressional map and ordered them to draw a new map with two majority black districts or two districts that are very close to majority black the Alabama state legislatures did not do that. Um, they drew a map that had one district that was majority black and one that was like 40% black. So really not anywhere close to a majority. So now it's going back to the courts and um, the federal judges will appoint a special master who is supposed to present new maps by the end of this month. So the process is speeding up pretty quickly at this point, and we should have a better sense of what these districts look like soon. Um, but ultimately, this is probably going to result in Democrats being able to take control of an extra seat in Alabama, which is obviously consequential when they have only five seats to flip in order to win a majority of the House in 2024. Exactly. It's close. <laughs> the fight is close. Uh, Jacob. So Democrats got a top recruit in Virginia's second district uh, congressional race. Uh, Missy Cotter Smazel is a Navy veteran. She launched her bid against Republican Jen Kiggins today in this coastal Virginia seat that is one of the most competitive House uh, districts in the nation. Uh, She is running against Republican Jen Kiggins, who herself narrowly ousted an incumbent Democrat Elaine Luria in 2022. Luria, of course, had uh, defeated an incumbent Republican back in 2018. This district changes hands quite a bit. It's a very military-heavy seat. Uh, Cotter Smazel, uh, Navy, former Navy officer, uh, previously ran for state Senate in 2019, uh, came up just short against her Republican opponent in that race, uh, but is entering the 2024 contest with the support of much of the Democratic political establishment. She rolled out a long list of endorsements uh, this morning, including most notably a former Virginia governor, Ralph Northam. 
and this morning being Wednesday morning, uh, for those of of you listening uh, at at different points. And to preview, our next issue of Inside Elections is actually going to be our House Overview, where we're going to update every competitive race around the country, including Virginia's 2nd District. Uh, For me, the don't miss it uh, would be Senator uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, unfortunately, had a second health episode, uh, public health episode, where he appeared to freeze at a press conference. Uh, This sparked uh, new talk about whether uh, McConnell will be finishing his term. Uh, There are some complicating factors that if he were to resign and there be an appointment, uh, the Democratic governor, Andy Bashir, would make that appointment. But according to state law, uh, he would need to pick uh, three people of the same party uh, in order. But he he could challenge that. He's up for re-election this year, which we'll talk about that race in a second. So there are a lot of moving parts, but new concern and talk about whether uh, Republic, the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, will there will be a change at the top. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degrees in campaign management and legislative affairs with in-person and online schedules designed for the working professional. The program is not just a sponsor. I'm also a graduate, and one of the benefits of the program are the other people in the program. Uh, I remember I had a classmate who said, I have a friend who's running for Congress. Uh, I think you should meet him. So I said, okay, TJ, who is he? And he said, well, he's a city councilman in Dublin in Northern California. Uh, He is running against a 20-term incumbent. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll meet with him. And I'm glad that I did because that candidate ended up being now Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. And so um, it's not just the classes, it's also the people. Click on the link for the GSPM program and see what it has to offer. Let's dive into our top three stories. First, we had two special elections 2,000 miles apart in Utah and Rhode Island. My name is Gabe Amo, and I'm running for Congress. I'm Celeste Malloy, and I approve this message. It's Becky Edwards, and she's the common sense conservative we need in Congress. So, Jacob, these are both your states that you cover for us. What went down in these special elections? Right. So there were two races that took place this past Tuesday uh, that we were watching very closely. There was the Democratic primary in Rhode Island's first district. Congressman David Cicilline resigned earlier this year. There was a really crowded primary uh, field uh, vying to replace him. Uh, More than a dozen candidates, multiple controversies, candidates dropping out, uh, candidates being accused of improper behavior. Ultimately, uh, Gabe Amo, who's a former White House aide, uh, ad- ended up winning that primary with about 33% of the vote, uh, getting uh, about nine points past uh, the the one of the front runners of, uh, earlier in the race, former state representative Aaron Regenberg. Uh, so Gabe Amo will most likely be the next member of Congress from this district. It's a very Democratic district, uh, and Republicans aren't expected to seriously compete Uh, in the general election. Uh, On the other side of the country in Utah's second district, that's where Republican Chris Stewart uh, resigned earlier this year as well. Um, That was a uh, slightly more compact primary, only three candidates there. And at the, the time that we're taping this podcast, that race still has not been called. It's actually neck and neck between Celeste Malloy, who is a former staffer for Congressman Stewart, 
uh, and uh, Becky Edwards, who is a former state representative in the Utah State Legislature. Celeste Malloy currently at about 38%, Becky Edwards at about 36%. There is still votes outstanding, votes left to count, both in uh, Celeste Malloy's home of Washington County uh, and Becky Edwards' home of Salt Lake County. So depending on how many votes are left in each of those municipalities uh, will determine who ultimately gets the nomination in this seat, uh, a safe Republican seat that Democrats have a a real candidate in, State Senator Kathleen Reby, uh, but are not expected to win this fall. So let's talk about Rhode Island for a second, since we we know more about it. And we should also note that the Vanessa Carlton and Barry Manilow candidates did not finish ahead. Uh, so that we should, we've talked about that before, but we, we want to make sure we update our, our listeners. Um, what type of member do we think Gabe Amo is going to be when he gets to Capitol Hill? Well, he is uh, squarely in the Bidenist faction of the Democratic Party. Um, former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, who had endorsed Amo, uh, worked with him when Amo was in the White House at the beginning of the Biden presidency, uh, called this race uh, a win for Bidenism uh, as the motivating force in the Democratic Party. So uh, Gabe Amo tied himself very closely to the president. You know, I think he's not uh, he's not the most progressive member uh, of the party. He's not a blue dog Democrat either. Uh, like Biden, I think he'll try and triangulate himself pretty squarely in in the middle and the mainstream of the Democratic Party uh, if and when he gets to Congress later this year. Well, it seems like he was also just trying to tie himself to the Kennedy family. Um, and I'm curious because <laughs> there was that ad that played at the end with former Congressman Patrick Kennedy endorsing him that seemed to be um, a motivating factor at the end of the race as he was gaining. Um, But I'm curious how much of, um, I guess, his support was based on his connection to Biden specifically or just to kind of like the Democratic establishment writ large and the fact that he would be, you know, a consistent Democratic vote and not too progressive or too moderate. I think it all kind of plays into the same general vibe, right? He obviously, uh, you know, ha- had that endorsement from Patrick Kennedy, who held this seat for a long time prior to David Cicilline, uh, that he rolled out at the very end of the race, playing on kind of the Kennedy nostalgia that we know is still very much alive and well uh, within the Democratic Party. Uh, he also put out an ad that was kind of a, a spoof of or a riff on the West Wing. Um, talking about his own time working in uh, not just the Biden White House, but actually as a uh, as an aide in the Obama White House, even though he uh, at that time was was very junior, just graduated college, and so showing that the the connections to Obama and the ties to Obama are still relevant in a Democratic primary. Uh, look, I, I think that that is all kind of part of his appeal, right? He, um, you know, is is both tied to the the Democratic. Kind of leadership, but also he's a young guy. He's charismatic. Uh, he's got a great story. He's a local kid, and so um, you know, I, I think it's all all of the above was was the the motivating um, forces behind his his victory, as well as, of course, you know, the, the fact that this race really was kind of a, a nine car pile up. I mean, uh, the the number of front runners this race has had has uh, 
you know, would be surprising to anyone who was thinking about how it was going to play out earlier in the year. At the beginning, it looked like Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos uh, might just kind of walk away with this thing. Um, and she ultimately placed fourth uh, after a, a signature scandal uh, and her w- regarding her petitions really just kind of put a hole in her campaign. Uh, the, the candidate who spent the most money on the race, Don Carlson, his bid was derailed by uh, allegations of inop- uh, inappropriate behavior uh, while he was a professor at Williams College. Uh, so a lot of things had to happen um, for Amo to capture that late momentum and, and get past Regenberg, who we always knew was going to claim about a quarter of the vote from the most progressive uh, voters in the Democratic Party. Yeah, because Regenberg had the event with Bernie Sanders right at, uh, during the during the campaign, um, and we want to talk about Utah. But was there a, a lesson on the campaign side, a lesson to be learned from Gabe Abon winning? You talked about he wasn't the front runner coming into the race. So was there a, a secret sauce, or was it just that hey, kind of slow and steady, and let the other candidates <laughs> torpedo their own <laughs> torpedo their own campaigns? Look, I think that uh, it it's a it's a clear indicator that campaigns still matter, right? All of the polling that we had in this race, certainly on the earlier side, and, and, and granted it was all coming from campaigns themselves, but uh, none of those numbers showed Gabe Amo anywhere close to uh, the the share of the vote that he ultimately got. I think it's a testament to his campaign uh, that he was able to build up that support over time. It's, it's a lesson in peaking right at the right moment. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, our, our colleague Daniela Altamari at Roll Call spent a lot of time with him in Rhode Island going around uh, knocking doors. Um, you know, he really ran a retail politics level campaign in addition to, of course, uh, you know, cashing in on on that connection to the, the many luminaries of the Democratic Party. Uh, he had support from the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, so he, he really did kind of tie it all together. Um, but it, it uh, the fact that his main opponents in the establishment lane all kind of crashed and burned uh, was was ultimately probably the most beneficial thing for him in order to get uh, to where he needed to be. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, right, uh, Sabina Matos, lieutenant governor, who at one point was polling as high as 30 percent, ended up with eight. She eight percent of the vote, right? If she had, uh, you know, gotten just a, a little bit more, if Don Carlson had stayed in the race and gotten just a little bit more, um, it, it's very easy to see how uh, Regenberg's twenty five percent goes from being a distant second place to being just enough to uh, get over the finish line in first. And so, um, you know, I think the overall lesson of of this race is that campaigns matter, candidates matter, um, and and things can can change pretty quickly in a matter of months. So as we shift to Utah, not knowing whether Malloy or Edwards will will finish first and win the important Republican nomination in a Republican leaning seat, uh, does it? Would they be different members on Capitol Hill in terms of Malloy and Edwards? Do would they be? Are they different types of Republicans? Yeah, look, I, I think that both of them are. Neither of them are kind of Freedom Caucus types. Neither of them are really out of the Trump wing of the party. Um, but Becky Edwards has uh, developed a reputation in her time as the as a state legislator uh, in her campaign against uh, Senator Mike Lee, 
uh, running in 2022 in the Republican Senate primary as one of the most moderate Republican legislators in the state of Utah. And I think should she enter Congress, she would probably be one of, if not the most moderate uh, Republican members of the House of Representatives. You know, she was very anti-Trump in the 2020 election. She ultimately... uh, talked up to voting for Biden in in the 2020 race. And I think that would put her alone, certainly as uh, one of the as the only Republican member to openly admit to voting for Biden in 2020. There may be some others who uh, would never would never uh, admit that on camera. Um, But that gives you kind of a sense of her politics. You know, sometimes she calls herself a conservative. Sometimes she calls herself a moderate. uh, But she uh, is very focused on bipartisan compromise. You know, Malloy, I think, is uh, comes from a more traditional wing of the Utah Republican Party. She came up through uh, Congressman Stewart's obvious uh, office. Obviously, you know, he um, has gotten closer to Trump in, in recent years, but is not certainly uh, kind of uh, originally from the Trump faction of the party. He's a more established legislator. So, uh, you know, I, I think the, the notable thing here is that the, the candidate who aligned himself most with Trump was Bruce Huff, uh, and he is in a distant third, is not going to win this seat. So, you know, Utah Republicans showing themselves uh, continuing to have a little bit more skepticism for the MAGA wing of the party than, than Republican primary voters in most other states. And we should close the loop from last episode that Bruce Huff is the father of Julianne and Derek Huff of Dancing with the Stars. So I know some of you were waiting. Uh, you were unclear about that mystery. Jacob, there was also a regional difference in a very large district uh, between the two candidates. Talk, talk about that a little bit. So Celeste Malloy comes from Washington County, which is uh, in the southwest corner of the state. Uh, it is a much more rural county. The district extends all the way northward to take in some of Salt Lake County and Salt Lake City, obviously that uh, largest metro area in the state of Utah. Um, the uh, One of the real factors behind Malloy's rise as a credible candidate in this race was the desire from a lot of Republicans uh, in this district to have representation off the Wasatch Front, off that central Utah region that includes Salt Lake City and Provo and some of the larger cities. Uh, there has not been in recent memory a, a representative uh, in Utah uh, in, in Congress from the area that Celeste Malloy is from. And so uh, she has worked that angle very heavily. It helped her win the state's nominating convention. Becky Edwards is from Salt Lake. Um, Bruce Huff is is not uh, from the, the rural part either. He's also from the Wasatch Front. And so um, the, Celeste Malloy has used that regional distinction to her advantage to marshal support. And as we look at the results, we see Becky Edwards uh, putting up really strong numbers in Salt Lake County, uh, really strong numbers in Davis County, which is right next door. Uh, and then uh, Celeste Malloy really uh, dominating in the more rural counties to the south and southwest. Well, to to end this part of the segment, I'm going to do a spontaneous trivia question. How many Rhode Island uh, districts, how many Rhode Island first districts would fit into Utah's second district? Because <laughs> the geography is so if you, the first person to email me the answer to that question, Nathan at InsideElections.com, I will give you a one month complimentary subscription uh, to the newsletter. So we're, we're going to add some spice to this. Uh, but, but let's move on. Uh, our second big topic is that our new ratings are out in the 2023-2024 races for governor. 
I have walked in the very shoes of the people who struggle way more than they should in a state as blessed as this one. We can have a state government that fixes problems and delivers solutions. So that was Jeff Landry, who is the Louisiana Attorney General and the likely successor to Governor John Bell Edwards. Um, So Edwards is the only Democratic governor in the Deep South, but he's term limited this year, and it's becoming more and more likely that Republicans are going to take control of this seat. So Aaron, tell us more about Jeff Landry, who looks like he's going to be the next governor of Louisiana. Yeah, so um, Landry is an interesting character as are um, a lot of the politicians who have come out of the state in recent years. Um, He got his start as a police officer in the Acadiana region of the state. Um, And he first made his foray into politics by running for state Senate back in 2007. And then three years later, um, after being unsuccessful with that bid, he ran for Congress for an open seat in 2010, um, which he ended up winning kind of as the yep. Tea Party conservative in the Republican primary. How- however, he was okay. only in Congress for just one term because right after that, he basically got redistricted out of his seat and had to run against an incumbent Republican congressman who defeated him in 2012. Um And then after leaving Congress, a couple of years later, he was elected to be attorney general of Louisiana in 2015. Um, Now, throughout his political career, he has dealt with a series of controversies, a couple of which have been around um, campaign finance ethics issues. He was reprimanded by the Louisiana Board of Ethics for using campaign funds to pay off a suburban a couple of years ago. Um, He also faced criticism for funneling his campaign money into a staffing company that he owns instead of paying campaign staff directly. Um, And if you, if he was paying campaign staff directly, you would be able to tell obviously how much he is paying his staff on the forms. But um, because it's all being funneled into a staffing company, it's not clear how much he is paying them. Um, There are also some controversies around a firm that he and his brother owned hiring um, undocumented immigrants So he's faced kind of a series of um, ethics issues over the years that has not stopped him, though, from becoming the front runner in the race to succeed Bell Edwards. And initially, this was going to be a much more competitive race, and Landry was potentially going to be running against some formidable opponents, including both of the state senators, Bill Cassidy considered running for governor, along with John Kennedy, um, along with the lieutenant governor. And um, one by one, all of these folks decided not to run. And because Landry had gotten a really early head start on fundraising and had gotten an early endorsement from the state Republican Party, he was really able to consolidate support. And by the time other Republicans who did not want him to be their next governor had kind of decided on an alternative candidate, um, it was a little bit too late. And so this is not going to be like the 2015 and 2019 races, most likely, where you had Republicans that were a lot more divided um, and the race was a lot closer. Um, And it seems like Landry is probably going to be the clear first place winner in the primary, which is in October. And then the Democrat on the ballot, Sean Wilson, will likely be the second place winner. And then the two will face each other in in November. Yeah. And, and if for those of you who want to know more about those stories about Landry that 
uh, Aaron was talking about, uh, she has links to those article uh, to those uh, to those stories in her story uh, for Inside Elections, as well as the polling that shows that Landry is the clear uh, the clear front runner. We had that race initially rated as um, as lean. Uh, lean Republican that it would be more. We thought it would be more competitive because of Edwards' track record. Uh, we recently moved it to likely Republican, which means we think Republicans, including Landry, have even more, even a better chance of taking over that seat. Um, but that's not the only race that's happening this year. There's also Mississippi and Kentucky. Um, Jacob, maybe talk about Mississippi first uh, and what's and what's happening there. So in Mississippi, uh, Republican Governor Tate Reeves is running for re-election. His Democratic opponent is Brandon Presley, who's a public service commissioner for the state's northern district. He comes from a small town called Nettleton uh, in the state's kind of northeast corner, uh, slightly slightly by Tupelo, where Brandon Presley is much more famous. Second cousin uh, made his name in the mid-20th century. But um, we, we moved this race from likely Republican to lean Republican to reflect an increased chance that uh, Presley could pull off an upset. Uh, there are a number of factors that contributed to that decision. You know, Reeves is dealing with the um, aftermath of uh, a pretty widespread welfare scandal that plagued the previous administration of Governor Phil Bryant. Uh, Reeves was lieutenant governor at the time. He wasn't directly involved, but the Presley campaign uh, has really been hammering him over and over about this scandal that has you know, caught up not just the former governor, but uh, football legend Brett Favre and, and a number of other state officials uh, former state officials at the time uh, as well. And so uh, there's the kind of the cloud of scandal. There is the strengths that Presley himself brings to the table uh, as kind of an old school Mississippi Democrat uh, who might be able to claw back at least some of the conservative white voters who have left the party in droves over the last uh, couple decades. Uh, he is proving to be a strong fundraiser on the national front, uh, and he is working very hard to you know, strengthen his relationship with the black community, black voters obviously being the bedrock of the Democratic Party in Mississippi. Uh, so you know, there, there's been some mixed polling data out of this race. All of it uh, shows Reeves in stronger position than Presley, but uh, the thing that Presley has is a uh, clearly defined path to victory, right? He knows exactly what he has to do in order to get to the 50% he needs to win. He needs to win a, a certain number of white voters, a certain number of black voters, and, and get the electorate to a, a certain composition uh, between black voters and white voters. And if he does that, uh, it's a tall task. It'll take a lot of money and effort, and it probably won't happen. <laughs> but if he does it, uh, he, he'll be the next governor of Mississippi. Yeah. And maybe the premier race this year is in Kentucky, where we talked about Democratic Governor Andy Bashir is up for re-election. Kentucky, a very Republican state. Uh, but what are but what are Republican chances of defeating the incumbent uh in that state? It could still happen. Uh, you know, we we had this race rated as a toss-up. We moved it to tilt Democratic. That's our first category uh, on the Democratic side of the ledger. What does that mean? It means that we see Andy Bashir, the incumbent Democratic governor, as the slight favorite. At the moment, he's got the stronger position, and we think that he's more likely than not going to maintain that position 
uh, over the next nine weeks until election day. What it doesn't mean is that he's a lock for re-election. What it doesn't mean is that Daniel Cameron, the Republican nominee, the state's attorney general, is dead in the water, not going to be able to win or anything like that. He could still win. Kentucky is a very Republican state. But if you look at the polling numbers, uh, Bashir is consistently polling at around or just above 50%, which is what he needs to win. Uh, he's got significantly more money uh, in the bank left to spend, and he's getting a lot of help from outside Democratic groups like the Democratic Governors Association, and he's very popular. His approval rating is somewhere in the high 50s or low 60s. And so he only has to win over voters who like the job he's doing as governor. He doesn't have to win over anyone who doesn't like how he's performing. Uh, you add all that up, you get a compelling case for Bashir at least being the slight favorite, despite the state's intense Republican lean. Yeah. And uh, whenever Daniel Cameron's name comes up, it's usually heir apparent to Mitch McConnell. <laughs> and that is relevant to what's what we were talking about earlier with um, Senator McConnell's health issues. And does Cameron, is he able to pull out this win over Bashir? And he ends up, and, and if McConnell steps down, does he end up making the appointment or, you know, there are a lot of moving pieces in this, in this process. Uh, in 2024, there aren't a ton of governorships, but there are two key um, uh, two key toss ups that we have: New Hampshire and North Carolina. Um, let's focus uh, for this, you know, for the time we have in this segment on North Carolina. Uh, Aaron, tell us kind of what's at stake in North Carolina uh, next year. Right. So in North Carolina, the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, is term limited. Um, and so this is teeing up to be probably one of the most competitive races in the country next year. Definitely Republicans best pickup opportunity on the gubernatorial front. And um, right now it looks like the likely Republican nominee is Mark Robinson, who is the lieutenant governor. Um, for those of y'all who follow North Carolina politics, you probably heard his name. He's a pretty controversial figure and kind of has a long history of saying um, bigoted remarks that have already come up um, very early in this race and is sure to be a focal point of it. Um, but he has won statewide before and um, has a lot of support from kind of the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, and this is going to be a competitive race regardless. Um, and then on the Democratic side, you have Josh Stein, who is the attorney general and the front runner for the Democratic nomination. He might face a primary opponent, um, but even with that, he is still um, the clear front runner. He's backed by Roy Cooper, who was also a former attorney general. Um, and is following a pretty well-worn path of Democratic attorneys general running for governor and being successful. So um, this is going to be a competitive race. We're starting it out as toss-up, um, but it's still very early. And um, once the primary is over and the general election ramps up, we'll have a better sense of how competitive it's going to be. In North Carolina is going to be very consequential. You talked about the governor's race at the presidential race. It's going to be a presidential battleground. Trump has won it twice uh, in the has won in the last two elections and then redistricting. We're expecting a new map out of North Carolina where Republicans are likely to gain at least a couple of seats, but that is still that is still in the process. Um, everyone can check out all of our governor's ratings uh, online at insideelections.com and uh, we'll be continuing to follow those uh, throughout the cycle. Uh, but let's move on. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. And finally, 
California Democrat George Whitesides is headed to space. At least he has tickets to go to space. Uh, we found this from his personal financial disclosure form. Actually, let's be Jacob. You found this in his in his personal financial disclosure form. How did you find this? And and tell us more about the story. Yeah, look, anyone can uh, anyone can find these tidbits if you know where to look. Uh, every candidate for the House of Representatives and for for Senate has to file a personal financial disclosure form. And that that's a form that they file with either the House clerk or the Senate clerk detailing all of their income, all of their assets, uh, if they've got positions on boards, things like that um, in, in, uh, in various forms. And, and it's always kind of interesting to look at the uh, holdings and, and the, the financial positions of people running for Congress. People uh, in Congress currently have to file them as well, of course. Um, you know, uh, it's something I do, right? Uh, it, the the uh, the database is always taking new new disclosures, right? Depending on uh, when candidates jump in the race is is when they have to file these disclosures. So every couple of weeks, I, I tend to go and take a look and and see uh, who has filed their PFD. In the case of George Whitesides, he's running for Congress in uh, California's twenty seventh district, in an LA County seat. Uh, currently represented by Republican Mike Garcia. It is one of the most Democratic districts held by a Republican. So Whitesides is trying to bring it back in line with the partisanship. Uh, Whitesides is, of course, a, a Democrat. He's also very wealthy. He's already put uh, some some of his own money into the campaign and, and has the capacity to spend more money. And so I'm always interested in just how wealthy candidates who say that they're going to self-fund are, you know, how much uh, financial power can they bring to this contest and the PFDs give you a, a window at least into those finances. So uh, frankly, uh, George Whiteside's uh, finances are, are uninteresting for the most part. He's uh, He doesn't have any sort of zany investments. He's got a lot of money, but it's all in uh, pretty, you know, uh, reasonable investments. This, uh, this is not an investment podcast, <laughs> but um, you know, I'm not a licensed financial advisor, but nothing really stood out there. But what did stand out is um, he, he listed holding two tickets for, quote, rocket-powered space flight. Um, now, the thing you have to know about George Whitesides is that he's the former CEO of Virgin Galactic, which is Richard Branson's space flight company. He's a former uh, chief of staff at NASA uh, under President Obama. And so he has a long history of involvement with the space industry. Uh, he has these tickets. I, I reached out to him after I saw them um, to ask whether he had a date already uh, for, for when he was going uh, up, up in space. And he said that he did not have a set time yet, uh, but was looking forward to it. Uh, whenever he got the opportunity, uh, I, I believe they will. Uh, he'll be on a, a Virgin Galactic flight, um, of course, his his old company. Um, but not sure whether that will be during the campaign or uh, when he's a member of Congress. I think he would be the first first member of Congress since uh, Bill Nelson back in the 90s to uh, go up to space. Well, I'm curious. Obviously, being an astronaut tends to help when you're running for Congress. I don't know if going to space like as a private citizen <laughs> is as helpful. So I'll be curious to see when this happens and kind of how that affects his standing um, among his among voters or among his like potential constituents. It, it you know, the, the he, he talks a lot 
uh, about the space stuff, but mostly in terms of you know bringing jobs to the district uh, that that the company had a lot of employees in district. Uh, and he talks just as much about his his other venture, which is a, a firefight uh, a firefighting venture, uh, a wildfire prevention uh, organizations that that he's stood up uh, to to help fight wildfires in California as well. And one last thing about the personal financial disclosures, some candidates and so or some current members intentionally handwrite them uh, instead of typing them. Uh, I would argue, I think everyone on this podcast or can would argue to maybe conceal or make it difficult to figure out how much uh, you know how much these candidates are worth. I don't know if that's. And I think that's a, a pet peeve, <laughs> uh, but it's it, that draws attention. I think if someone's handwriting him, then they they often get more more scrutiny. And finally, our last segment: look what I found. Uh, it doesn't have to be political; it could be sports, TV, pop culture. You never know what you're going to get. Uh, Jacob, what did you find? So this is more of a look what I rediscovered uh, as opposed to a look what I found. But I recently was in Bethesda, uh, which is right by where I grew up, and stopped by uh, Vace, which is an Italian deli and pizza shop that has a couple locations in D.C. And um, you know, when I was in high school, I used to go there a lot for lunch, and I would always get the same thing. I would get a, a spicy soppressata sandwich. Uh, with the works, with everything on it. Um, and I had not had one in, in probably 10 years. Um, and so I decided to order one on a whim and it was just as delicious as I remember it. Um, it, it they do a really nice job there. Uh, it's a good, it's a good uh, shop, great food, good sandwiches, good pizza. So if you're in Bethesda, if you're in Cleveland Park, um, go to Vache. I'm hungry. Uh, <laughs> not not sponsored. This is yeah. a SponCon. Not yet. Not yet. But Vache, if, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, Aaron, what'd you find? So this is also pretty DC specific, although actually not. Um, depending on where you're living, you may live near an Alamo Draft House, which is a great chain of movie theaters that started um, in my home state of Texas. So I'm a little biased, um, but they're always showing a lot of throwback films. And I found out a couple of days ago that they were showing 2001 A Space Odyssey um, on for one night only. It was last night. It kind of did overlap with results coming in, but um, I chose to sit in a movie theater rather than just refresh the New York Times page. Um, and it was really incredible to see this film on the big screen where I think it was meant to be seen. Um, it came out in 1968. And so um, it was wild thinking about what the experience of seeing this in a movie theater in 1968, when it was like really the front runner of all of these sci-fi space movies was like. Um, but yeah, if you live near an Alamo Draft House, I encourage you to check out their movie showings. They don't just show what's currently out, but they're always doing these throwbacks that are usually a lot cheaper than the regular movie tickets too. And you still made it to the Twitter spaces. So it all, it all worked out. Uh, now, and I found uh, the Nate land podcast. It's not because my name happens to be Nathan. Um, it's, Comedian Nate Bargetsy and three other comedians uh, sitting around a table talking about their lives. Uh, the last episode, they had a fast food bracket where they were ranking uh, fast food chains, which is which is my speed. It's also clean. I admit that's that's my speed as well. Uh, it's kind of a palate cleanser, maybe after going through uh, 
following politics as we do on a on a very specific level. So after you're done watching the entire Inside Elections library uh, podcast library, uh, you might check out the the Nate Land uh, the Nate Land podcast. Our library of five podcasts. <laughs> exactly. Actually, all all of our episodes together might be as long as one of their episodes. It's a it's a trip. Uh, they, it's a long journey, uh, but they but it but it's fun as well. That's all the time we have. We learned about who might be coming to Congress after special elections in Utah and Rhode Island. We talked about the state of governor's races in this country. And we learned about the excitement and mystery of the congressional candidate who has tickets to space, all in the context of a competitive fight for the House and the Senate this election cycle. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the races and bring valuable context to those complex elections. Go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailored to boost corporate and association packs. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and rate us. If you're watching us on YouTube, please push that thumbs up button. If you didn't like today's episode, please email Julianne Huff. We'd also want to thank our producers, Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us next time. (laughs) 